Good morning. My name is Dana, and I'm one of the pastors here at Erickson Covenant Church. And we are right in the middle of a sermon series called A Life Worthy of the Calling, which is about the book of Ephesians. And because the series is so long, we've actually made a little video for you this morning to help everybody remember what we've learned so far. So uh, let's watch the video together and uh, get caught up. The year 60 AD was a really hard time to be a Christian. There was persecution outside and fighting inside the church. And into that context, Paul writes Ephesians. It's a letter that lays out a worldview for believers, a way of understanding what's really going on. And the point of the letter is that God knows exactly what he's doing. He is enacting a plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. He's going to gather up all the broken, divided, forgotten people and reconcile them to himself through Jesus. It started when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places and put everything, everything we're afraid of, everything that has power over us, under his feet. And the church? Well, before we became believers, we were dead in the water. We were stuck, following the course of the world, following the ruler of the power of the air, following the desires of our flesh. We are being carried along by forces we can't even see. Ideas like individualism and consumerism, the drive to make money, being suspicious of a people group, or thinking you're only valuable if you look a certain way, we're all stuck in that current, and it's too powerful to swim against. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's like God reaches down and just plucks us out of the water. And more than just being with Jesus, we are his body. The church is so connected to Jesus, we can't be separated. The problem is there are a lot of divisions in the church. Theological differences, grudges, worship styles, racial divides, they all keep us cut off from one another. But how can a divided body model God's plan for reconciliation? It won't work. Paul says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He is making one new humanity, reconciling both groups to God in one body. And when that happens, the church can accomplish God's plan. That's why it matters that we learn to love each other. It matters that you shake hands with a neighbor this morning, or that you apologize or forgive your friend. It matters because the church is the body of Christ, a living example of God's cosmic plan. We are going to show the world 
that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And it's starting here with us. Oh, that was so great. Um, I just want to say out loud thank you to Micah Greentree, who did the recording and editing of that video, and Matt Quick, who did the artwork. I could not have pulled that off with those two guys. So great job, you guys. Thanks. Now, uh, we have been using these little booklets during this series uh, to take some notes because Ephesians is kind of a complicated and wordy book, and it helps us if we have the text right in front of us. So if you don't have a booklet in front of you this morning, would you just raise your hand? Um, Our ushers are going to be really happy to come and give you a booklet. And, um, yeah, don't be embarrassed. Just put your hand up, and they'll bring it to you. Uh, and so that you know, what we've been doing is leaving these booklets in our mailbox file folders by the front door. So if you want to leave it so you don't forget it, you're welcome to do that. Now, before we get right into the scripture today, I have a question for you. Do you know who your life is for? Who are you here for? And You know, I'm not looking for the standard answer for Jesus, although that might very well be true. What I mean is, who do you extend yourself for? Who do you sacrifice for? Who would you be willing to suffer for? Maybe your spouse? Maybe your kids? Anybody else? It's a really important question. And actually, we all have to face it at some point in our lives. Um. There's a psychologist whose name is Eric Erickson, and he is famous for this idea, this concept he created called the stages of psychosocial development. And basically what Erickson proposed is that over the course of our lives, we have to resolve a series of crises. And if we resolve the crisis successfully, uh, then we develop a virtue that we need for a successful social life. If we don't figure out how to resolve the crisis, there might always be a gap. So, for instance, from about like zero to 18 months old, babies are trying to resolve the trust versus mistrust crisis. They're trying to decide and figure out, is the world a safe place by and large, or is it dangerous and unpredictable? And the way that they resolve that crisis is by looking to their primary caregiver. And if that relationship is strong and stable, then they can resolve that crisis. And the virtue that they develop at that age is hope. So if they resolve it successfully, then for their whole lives, every time they face challenges, every time things seem unpredictable, they have within them hope that things will settle down, that they'll work out. And that's so helpful. Well, in adulthood, and usually between about 40 and 65, although that's, you know, a little murky, it can be different. In adulthood, we're resolving a crisis called generativity versus stagnation. And our work in that season of our lives is to create and nurture something that will outlast us. It's sort of like working on your legacy. And the most obvious thing that people do, of course, is they raise children, right? You <laughs> you create and nurture this whole little set of people who will outlast you. 
but it's also what's going on when you coach a sports team or create a benevolence program or you set up a trust fund or like you give to a capital campaign and they're going to build a new dining hall at the camp where you went when you were a kid, right? All of that is work that will outlast you and benefit others. And the virtue that we're developing in this season is care. We come to care about something or someone more than ourselves. And we learn to give of ourselves for a bigger cause. So, who is your life for? Let's hold on to that question. Today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And it's four or five pages into your little booklet, but just look for the title, Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. Uh, Let me read this for us, and then we'll notice some things together. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you've already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. So right off the bat, I notice Paul's soft spot for Gentile Christians. Did you see that? In verse 1, he says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. He's bound to Jesus, but not for his own sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. And in fact, for Paul, it's not just being bound to Jesus in the spiritual sense. He's literally in prison. And he says he's there for the sake of the Gentiles. And then at the very end of verse 13, he says, Don't lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. Don't be upset, he says, or feel guilty that I'm in prison for your sake. I don't feel bad about this at all. This is your glory. Now that seems like an unusual response to being in prison, doesn't it? How on earth did Paul come to that place? Well, in verse 2 and 3, he says, this is kind of funny, I think, Surely you have heard already 
of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So he's basically saying, surely you already know all about this story. Well, maybe they did, the people listening to Ephesians. But I don't think we necessarily know. So let's take a couple of minutes and look at Paul's story. The first time Paul shows up in the Bible is in a book called Acts of the Apostles. It's telling the story of the first few years of the church after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the apostles, 11 of the 12 men who were closest to Jesus, are doing incredible things. They are spreading the message that Jesus rose from the dead and people are free from their sins. They're preaching. They're healing people. There are these incredible movements of the Spirit such that people are selling their property and giving the money to be distributed among the poor. Thousands upon thousands of people are becoming believers every day. It's such a massive movement that the Jewish leaders start to really get worried. I mean, if there's a riot or a, a rise, an uprising from this new group, it could cause so much upheaval that the Roman government would revoke all the special privileges they'd granted to Jews to live according to their own tradition. So, the Jewish religious leaders start coming down hard on the Christians. They arrest the apostles and throw them in prison. They beat them in public. They make them stand before the highest courts. And they even stone them. In Acts chapter 8, there's a story of a Christian named Stephen who is stoned. And here's what it says. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing him. Now Saul, who is presiding over this stoning, is the same person, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Saul is his original name. It wasn't uncommon in that day for people to change their names to commemorate a massive transition in life. And that's exactly what he did. He started out life as a devoted zealous young man committed to ridding the Jewish community of these crazy new Christians. So Acts says, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside. Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women he committed them to prison. He literally goes from house to house, into their homes, searching for Christians. And then he drags them off to prison or he stones them. Chapter 9 says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues so that if he found any who belonged to the way, which means any Christian, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wants to broaden his search to other towns, and he gets special permission to just arrest anyone he finds. But then, as he's on the road, a crazy thing happens. A flash of light surrounds him, and he falls to the ground, and he hears this voice come out of the sky. No one else hears it. And it says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. So Jesus literally stops him on the road with a light, talks to him, 
strikes him blind, and then makes him wait in the town for another believer. This other believer comes, heals Saul, and blesses him, and they both hear God say that Saul is the instrument chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles. So from this moment of Saul's conversion, he knows that his calling is to bring the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. And from that point forward, that's what he does. But the thing is, it's not a popular message, and no one expects it. The Jews have been waiting. They've been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah, who is this person who's supposed to save them from oppression and restore them to glory as God's own people. And so for them, the only real question was whether Jesus was the Messiah. And if they believed he was, then following him was a completion, in a way, of their Jewish faith. But throughout their centuries-long history, the Jews were a people set apart. They were God's own chosen people. And the Gentiles, which is to say everyone else who is not a Jew, were, the Jews believed, excluded from all the promises made to God's people. Now, the truth is, Jesus did never say that. In fact, he did a lot of things to demonstrate that God's love was for everyone. But sometimes, when you think something is just for you, you don't want to hear that message. And in fact, by the time Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he describes that message as a mystery. It's especially clear in our text today. So you pull out your booklet and look with me. Let's look together. In verse 3, Paul says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. In verse 4, he says, An understanding of the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, This mystery was not made known to humankind. And then in verse 9, What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages? It's very mysterious. No one knows what it is. And then in verse 6, Paul lays out exactly what the mystery is. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. It is the same thing we've been reading for weeks, that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. Because, of course, the Gentiles were everyone else, all other people. So this mystery is that God is bringing together all the people, the Gentiles and the Jews, as they come to believe in Jesus. They are going to be fellow heirs. They are all God's people, not just the Jews. That's the message that Paul has been taking all over the known world since his conversion. And that message is getting him in trouble. I mean, early in his life, he's a pretty important guy. To have an audience with the chief priests, to have authority to go anywhere and arrest anyone he wanted, people are literally taking off their coats and laying them down at his feet as a sign of honor and respect. He was a big deal. And now, people are chasing him. They're always trying to arrest him. He gets beaten and starved and thrown in prison on a regular basis. It doesn't seem like a good trade. And yet, listen to what Paul 
writes about his own life. In verse 2 he says, For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you. In verse 7 he says, I have become a servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me. And in verse 8 he says, Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. He keeps saying, it's grace. Paul considers the calling on his life, the calling to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to be God's grace to him. He considers it a profound gift, a gift of grace, a gift that saved him somehow. That's strange. (laughs) What kinds of things do we usually count as gifts or as a grace? When something goes well for us, right? When someone is healed, when we get the house we've been hoping for, when someone gets out of trouble. I mean, grace is about getting something we don't deserve. And usually we think that means something that we like, that's pleasant and good for us. We don't often consider something hard something challenging, something painful even, as being God's grace to us. How do you even begin to understand something like that? Well, I was having coffee with George Golder this week. There's the Golder family right there. Okay. And George told me the story of the day that he quit smoking. He had been married to Terry uh, just for a short period of time. And he was getting used to being a dad to her three little kids. And one day, he stepped outside onto the balcony for a smoke. In the winter. In Calgary. (laughs) So, it was freezing. And he said he was standing there, hunched over in the wind, shivering, smoking, when he suddenly looked up and noticed all three kids lined up at the patio door, their noses pressed against the window, watching him. And he said, I just stopped. And I thought, what am I doing? These kids look up to me and I'm teaching them that smoking is worth freezing outside for. That's crazy. I'm done with this. And he crushed up his pack of smokes, walked inside and told Terry, that's it. I'm not smoking anymore. They both quit that day, 21 years ago. Impressive. Well, I think... That day, or sometime in that season, George resolved the generativity versus stagnation crisis. He decided to do something that would outlast him. He decided who his life was for. And listen, I just want to say, if you don't know George Golder, you're missing out. He embodies the father heart of God. He loves his kids more than anything except maybe his incredible wife. And he would do anything for them. He knows who his life is for. That day on the balcony, the calling on his life to be a father saved him in a very practical way. It was God's grace to him because it changed him. And I just want to be clear. 
I'm not picking on smoking. I couldn't care less if you're a smoker. I mean, it's not good for you or anything, but it's not like a moral issue. It's just an example. Parenthood saves us in all kinds of ways. Where we were selfish before, we become concerned with others. We do, right? I know you do, because how many parents truly want to play Barbies again, or sit at a splash pad, or watch their kid play another hour of Minecraft on the computer? You are doing that for the good of someone else. Where we were impatient and harsh, we become gentle and kind. Where we were fearful, we become courageous. And I know it's not every story, not every parent rises to it, I'm aware of it. But when it's working, parenthood saves us. It makes us better when our lives are for someone else. Paul wasn't a parent, though. We're fairly sure he wasn't even married. But that's what he's talking about. The calling on his life to bring God's love to the Gentiles saved him, changed him, made him better. In fact, it made him who he was meant to be. I am a prisoner for Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Don't lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. Paul knew who his life was for. And his calling was God's grace to him. So, let me ask you that question again. Who is your life for? For your kids, maybe? For the people you work with? For a particular cause? For your grandchildren? All good answers. But Paul has another idea. He sneaks this into the letter. You have to read carefully to see it. He's talking a lot in this passage about the mystery being revealed or made known. So I always mark words like that, like seeing, revealing, made known, with like a little eye over top. So you can steal that for your manuscript if you want. But let's just track those through together. In verse 3, we see the word words made known, and then right away, revelation. In verse 4, we see understanding, and then later, made known. And then, revealed in verse 5. And then in verse 9, the word see. In verse 10, the word made known. It's all the way through here a lot. He's really highlighting the mystery being revealed. But I want to talk about three of those times and see how they parallel one another. So first of all, In verse 3, now these are going to come up on the screen so you can see how they track together. First of all, in verse 3, the mystery is made known to me, who is Paul, by revelation. And we know that, right? That makes sense. The flash of light and the supernatural conversation with Jesus that Paul had, he became in that moment instantly convinced through divine revelation that the gospel was for everyone. Then in verse 5, so we'll line this up underneath. The mystery was revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And that also makes sense. When the Holy Spirit came after Jesus' ascension, 
It gave the apostles insight they didn't have before. You can read all about that in the Acts of the Apostles. Finally, verse 10 says, the mystery, well, okay, actually verse 10 says the wisdom of God, but if you track that sentence back, the wisdom of God is referring to the mystery. So, okay, the mystery or the wisdom of God was made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And we talked about those guys a little while ago. That's like the entire spiritual realm made known to the spiritual realm through the church. That's amazing. The mystery of God's plan to reconcile all things to himself was made known to Paul by revelation, to the apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit, and now it is being made known to the entire spiritual realm, to all rulers and authority through the church, through us. That's our calling, folks. Since we are members of the church, this is what our lives are for. No matter whether you're married or single, whether you have children or not, whether you're rich or poor, young or old, introvert or extrovert, thriving or struggling, your calling is to reveal God's plan of reconciliation. Last week we talked about reconciliation in depth, particularly intercultural reconciliation. This call is deep and it's wide. Living into it means expanding our sense of family. It means welcoming people into our lives. It means going to intentionally become part of their lives. Way more than is normal. Trust me. If you do this, you're going to seem crazy. Because I'm suggesting, and Paul is suggesting, that we extend ourselves for other people just as much as we extend ourselves for our own children. I'm suggesting that we sacrifice, that we go to great lengths to belong to people who are not like us, who are unfamiliar, who might even seem strange, people we don't really know yet. And if we do that, we'll have at least three outcomes. First of all, you will gain this incredible new family who you, you will love. That's amazing. Second, you will be revealing God's plan, both in the world and in the heavenly places, which is an incredible idea. And finally, you will discover God's grace to you. You will find that you are being saved. You will be saved from a small life. You will be rescued from independence and privacy, which we say we like, but often end up in isolation and loneliness. You will come to find out who your life is for and who you are really supposed to be. It will change you for the better. Now, maybe as I've been preaching today or as you've been listening to the whole series, you've had a sense of who God is calling you to, a particular person or an age or ethnic group or a collection of people you know from school or work or just around town. If you know, take a second to write that down in your books you remember. When I was 21 years old, I went to Mexico on a missions trip. 
Uh, I was with eight other people for a month, and we spent part of our time at an orphanage where I met a three-year-old boy named Kaya. Here he is. This is Kaya's picture, and (laughs) yeah, isn't he cute? And this is my friend Andrew beside him, and Andrew is teaching Kaya how to make a gorilla face, so they look amazing. Um, Kaya was this gorgeous, funny, gregarious, loving little boy. I was enthralled with him. And Kaya means shut up in Spanish. He was called that because it was the only word he responded to. It had been yelled at him so consistently by the time he was two and a half that he thought it was his name. So one day, Kaya fell asleep on my lap, and I sat down in the courtyard so I wouldn't disturb him. And while I sat there, I cried and prayed, asking God to make a way for me to bring this little boy home with me. You are not supposed to do that on mission trips. It's like a big no-no, bringing the kids home with you. But even at 21, I knew I could be a good mom to him. I could offer him a better life than he was going to have growing up in an orphanage. I could love him. And I don't often hear God speak audibly, but that day I did. He said as clearly as if he was right behind me, I will take care of him. Your job is to love the ones in front of you as long as they're there. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea that over the next 15 years, God would bring a steady stream of people into my life for me to love. Sometimes they're kids. Wherever I've lived, I've found kids who I'm sure are are like mine. I mean, okay, not in like the creepy way. Shoot, nobody's ever going to let me look after their kids again. Um, But, like, I know I'm supposed to pay attention to them. All right. (laughs) You know what I mean. But they've also often been adults. Every once in a while I meet someone and I just know they're the ones who God is putting in front of me right now. Sometimes I know that's going to happen even before I meet the people. Like when I moved this group of interns into my house, I remember going to sleep the night before they arrived with this deep sense of anticipation because I barely knew them at all. But I was sure that over the course of our eight months together, they would become family. I was thinking, maybe that's how it feels when you're waiting to be a parent, is it? You don't know that little person at all but you know you'll love them in a way you can't even imagine. Well, let me say this to you. That experience is not based on biology. It can happen with people who are not your biological children, really. And as believers, as members of the church, our invitation is to prove that that is possible. Who is your life for? You got that written down yet? Then I want to invite you to make a move this week. Take a first step. It might be as simple as having a DTR with some people you've been getting to know. Do you know what that means, DTR? Define the relationship. It's a talk that you have 
usually in a romantic context when you're trying to figure out what are we all really doing here. But it doesn't have to be romantic. Sit down with some people and talk about becoming real friends, kingdom friends, committing to one another. It's powerful to sit across from someone and say, I want you to know I am in this thing for as long as it takes. You can count me as family. Or maybe you're starting a brand new friendship. Or you're learning about a new group. Well, go ahead and make a first step this week. Throw yourself into it. Set your will towards it and don't look back. You know, when I was talking to George, he told me that he had tried to quit smoking a bunch of times before that day. But he always made a deal with himself that he'd quit once he finished that pack because he paid good money for it, right? That day on the balcony, he just saw his kids' faces and he crumpled the whole pack up in his hands and threw it away and he never looked back. Let's do that. Let's throw ourselves into this thing. Let's find out how amazing this mystery really is and how this calling to be part of it to reveal it can be God's grace to us.